0: Sometimes you know the cause of your suffering, and it's your own sin. I remember praying parts of Psalm 6 when my oldest son came to live with us around the age of seven. We were about to add our fifth child when suddenly my oldest son came to live with us. We had been trying to get custody of him for many years, and Both my wife and I were very nervous and and excited. Here was a little boy who had been raised by another mother with very different standards, and now he would come to live with us. The next few years were one sustained trial of our faith. I watched not only as my son suffered to fit into our Christian family, but also my dear wife, pregnant, and the brunt of raising my son fell upon her. Because at the same time, I was, I was trying to build a landscaping business, which wasn't quite profitable enough to support my family. I worked at night, so I wasn't home all the time. And I, I remember groaning the words of Psalm 6, for I felt acutely the discipline of the Lord for the sins of my youth, for the sins of divorce. I knew that the, the suffering that my wife and my child were experiencing were because of me, that I had brought them on myself. And the psalmist recognizes that behind the suffering he is currently experiencing, whether it's a sickness or an anxiety that makes him sick, or it's just an enemy bent on doing him harm, behind that suffering lies the discipline of the Lord. And he grapples with the notion that God disciplines those whom he loves as he struggles through the psalm to find a balance between God's anger on the one side and God's mercy on the other. So even if you're not or you cannot recall suffering for your own sins, this psalm helps us understand the dynamic of God's discipline and his mercy, both which flow from his steadfast love. And the psalmist helps us understand how we can find relief from the suffering that we experience as the result of the Lord's discipline. And he lays this out in a two-step process, and he ends by highlighting its results. It begins with an appeal to the gracious character of God, and it is carried out with deep contrition for sin. And the result of that, the result of God's chastening, is a growing faith that has much more confidence in God to deliver. Since God is gracious, we must plead with Him to deliver us when we're suffering under the rod of His discipline. If you have a Bible or you can turn in your bulletin to Psalm 6, and we will read together. Let me remind you that these are the words of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, some of us even now, are experiencing the rod of your discipline. Others of us have gone through it in the past. And for those who have not, we can be sure that we will in the future. Because you discipline those you love. You chastise your sons so that Christ may be formed in them. Father, may we learn as the Puritans say, to kiss the rod. May we bear up under the weight of our own sins, your discipline, and come to a place of great trust and confidence and a deepened faith in you. As we work through this psalm, Father, open our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalmist is facing some kind of hardship. And it's not clear exactly what it is. Many think from the phrasing of verse 2 that it's a sickness. He cries out, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Some say that it's an anxiety that's leading to sickness. Many of you, if you've struggled with anxiety, you know that it cripples your whole body. It's not just thoughts in your mind. It's debilitating. Your bones are sore. Because of your anxiety. Maybe he's just anxious about something. Maybe he's anxious about enemies that are outside. Maybe it's a real threat that he's facing. Something that's trying to persecute him. Or, But I think that it's specifically general. So that it, it's broadly applicable. The difficulty the psalmist faces is left ambiguous. So that it can cover the broadest spectrum of it of adversity faced by all of us. What is perhaps unique and a a distinct feature of this psalm is the psalmist's recognition that what lies behind the enemy that he's facing is the discipline of God, the discipline of the Lord. There's no getting around the fact that suffering attends everyone in this life. No one can avoid all suffering. Primarily because no one can remove themselves from a life in a sinful and a broken world. Nor from the inevitable slide towards the grave we're all gently on. But while suffering is universal, its purpose is different depending on who you are. Or I should say whose you are. For those outside of the covenant community, suffering results from God's judgment on sin. Both original sin and their actual sins. In their case, suffering is a matter of strict justice. Since in their sin they refuse to acknowledge God and to give him thanks, the chastisement of the Lord falls on them in the form of punishment, which in this life is attended with God's common grace. So they have the good and they have the bad. But in the end... They will lead them to eternal punishment in hell, an unimaginable suffering for all of eternity. But for those within the covenant community, suffering results from God's loving discipline. And that includes suffering brought on by our own sins, and that which comes from following Christ in a sinful world. The suffering we experience as the people of God is redemptive designed by a gracious Heavenly Father to lead us to glory, a place of no suffering. The psalmist recognizes that behind what he is suffering is the discipline of God. But he uses this psalm to wrestle through that tension between God who promises himself to be merciful and the God who will not clear the guilty. How do we deal with that tension and how, how long will this suffering last? How long must I stay under the rod of your discipline? Notice in verse 1 through 5, the psalmist is wrestling with this tension. Because in the moment, no discipline is pleasant. It's always painful. And we're always asking, how long we're trying to understand the the connection between God's mercy and God's anger. And you can hear that tension as the psalmist wonders, will the Lord's anger outweigh his mercy? Will he ever be merciful again or will I die under this sickness or anxiety or enemy or whatever it is that you're facing? Will this last forever? that question hangs over the first seven verses, but interspersed throughout is an appeal to God's gracious character, pleading with him to be merciful again and to turn from his anger. You will notice that throughout Scripture, the basis for prayer, the basis for any confidence that his people can have, that he will intervene and deliver them is based on who God is, his character. And the psalmist is constantly reminding himself, because we we sing these, we remind ourselves of who God is towards us. Without a firm grasp of who God is, we won't have the confidence that God will do anything to deliver us from whatever it is we're facing. And those, as I said a couple weeks ago, we're not we're not reminding God of who He is. He never forgot. He doesn't need to be reminded of His character. We do. Because when we're under the rod of His discipline, we forget that He is merciful. And we only see His anger. And in those moments, we have to remind ourselves of the character of God. It's because in those moments of discipline, Satan in our own flesh will whisper in our ear. He will tell you. God is only angry with you. There is no more mercy for you. The psalmist is not shy with God. He plainly questions Him, saying, But You, O Lord, how long? How long will Your rod be upon me? How long will I suffer from Your discipline? From Your anger and Your wrath? There we hear the desperation for relief as the assaults of his enemy. Ultimately, they are the assaults of God. They continue to buffet him. But notice that his plea for God to save him is grounded in the steadfast love of the Lord. He says, turn, O Lord, in verse 4, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, your chesed. That is God's covenant-keeping love. That word we have already encountered in this psalter and repeatedly, for it expresses the most endearing of attributes, God's covenant faithfulness. When my children were little, I loved reading them the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones because she captures so well this steadfast love, this This faithfulness of God, she calls it, it's God's never-ending, never-giving-up, never-failing-always-and-forever love. And in almost all of the stories she tells, she ends with that. Because we, we always have to be driven back to see the character of God. We have to be driven to see that God is the one that keeps covenant with us. Our sins separate us from him, and they may bring us for a time under his discipline, but that does not mean he has abandoned us. We have to remind ourselves of the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist lays that out. He says, remember your covenant promises. Remember that you said, I'm a part of your people and you are my God. And now my present experience is that I don't feel you as my God. We have to remind ourselves that. Because when we are in the grip of suffering, wondering how long God will continue to allow our enemies to buffet us, you may doubt that God remembers His covenant. God's covenant keeping love is grace all the way down We are undeserving of God's love. There's nothing in us that makes us deserving of it. That's what we often go to. We think, well, it's because of my sin has made me undeserving. You were undeserving before His grace came to you. Luther in his Heidelberg Disputation said this, Quote, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Because the love of God, which lives in man, loves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They're not loved because they are attractive. But in the middle of suffering, we think, I'm not attractive to God any longer, so now he doesn't love me. But remember, it's his love that pursued you, that made you attractive. And that's why we have to constantly go back to the character of God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The psalmist is reminding himself and everyone who sings this psalm reminds themselves who who God is. To bear up under the discipline of the Lord, we fly to Christ from whose side mercy and grace have been poured out. For these same words are true of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. For if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. And you are of all creatures most to be pitied. But God did not abandon his son to Sheol. The place of no remembrance. Notice that. I'm weary with my, he says in, in, uh, in verse, four, or verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise. He is pleading with them. Do you want to punish me all the way into the grave? If I go there, will I be able to praise you? How will I ever recover if I'm all the way gone? There you will not remember your covenant. There I will not be able to praise you. How far will your discipline go? With the Lord Jesus, it went all the way to the grave, but it didn't end there. He delivered his son from death and he put all his enemies to open shame. Verse 10. Christ, the captain of our faith, endured hostility as an innocent man. He suffered because of your sin, enduring the chastisement, the discipline of the Lord. On our behalf so that he can offer help in time of need is the grace of the Lord Jesus that we appeal to when we are under the discipline of the Lord, both because he has ready access to the father, but also because he endured discipline that you could never, ever bear. And that means he can sympathize with you. There's nothing that you're going to face in this life that the Lord Jesus can't understand. And didn't tread a worse path. All the way into the grave. The psalmist is saying, don't let me get that far. Jesus went all the way. So when we cry out to Him. When we cry in desperation. We say, how long, O Lord. We then appeal to the steadfast love of the Lord. Whose nature it is to be merciful. To all those who come to him and his son. And, they, and I assure you, brother and sister, you will find help in that time. Just as the psalmist does. But an appeal, an appeal to the character of God, to the gracious nature of God, an appeal to his covenant-keeping faithfulness without the necessary heartwork, work would be incomplete. Just as the psalmist is aware that behind the hardship he is enduring, whatever it is, sickness or anxiety or or a real enemy, it is the Lord who is disciplining him. He instinctively knows that the right response to such hardship is repentance. But for repentance to be genuine, it must be godly sorrow for sin. There is a kind of grief that does not lead to genuine repentance, and Paul says, distinguishes these in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, If I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. See, Paul had some hard things to say in a letter that grieved the Corinthians. But Paul does not regret this because that grief led them to repentance. To be sure, when the Lord disciplines us, that is the intended effect. Grief that leads to repentance. When God is disciplining us, it's not pointless. It's designed by Him to lead you from grief through repentance to a deeper faith in Him. But there is a kind of grief that is worldly. And Paul says that that leads only to death. Maybe you've experienced this. You correct your child or a friend or a brother or sister in Christ. And your, your correction produces grief. or Maybe just anger. But whatever the response, you can tell there's no godly sorrow for sin. Repentance that is genuine can only result when we have the right view of sin. That causes the grief which leads us to turn to God and away from sin. Listen to the depths of David's sorrow when the Lord's hand was heavy upon him. In verses 6 and 7 he says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. That is a man who is deeply humbled, a man who is brought to the very edge of despair, a man desperate for God to intervene. I dare say he feels this way because he recognizes it is the Lord who is rebuking him in anger and disciplining him in his wrath. Verse 1. And in that situation, there are really only two responses. One is anger. The grief at the discipline of the Lord makes you angry, which causes you not to turn towards God, but to move farther away. Even if it's just for a time, anger will not lead to relief. In another penitential psalm, David recounts what it was like when he refused to repent when God disciplined him. Says is Psalm 32, three. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The right way to respond to the discipline of the Lord is to allow the grief to lead you to repentance. The confession says this of repentance unto life. It says, By it, a sinner, that is by repentance a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also of the filthiness and the odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous laws of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him In all the ways of His commandments. Is the Lord disciplining you? If so, how are you responding? What about in the past? When the Lord brought you through something difficult that caused you grief? What did the grief lead to? There is a grief that leads to death. And the best example of this kind of sorrow is those caught in sin who are grieved. But they're more grieved because they were caught then they are grieved for the sin itself. And and if they weren't caught, they probably would have continued in the sin. Parents, you need to point out this difference to your children. You should endeavor to teach them that what God wants from us is godly sorrow for sin. For that, you must show them the difference. Parents, we are so prone to discipline our children because they inconvenience us. But we need to be pointing them to what is actually sin. What displeases God, not you. And For that, you must show them the difference. We want to shape their conscience so that when they sin, it causes them grief internally. And they desire to come and confess and be forgiven to find relief. To do that, you have to be actively shaping their conscience by opening up the Word of God and showing them what sin is. And what it looks like. Now, Johnny, what you just did there and taking the cookie from the cookie jar is sin. God calls his people not to steal. And when you take something that doesn't belong to you without asking, that's stealing. And that is a sin. Now, God forgives us. When we confess our sin, he forgives us. And I forgive you. Now, at first, Johnny. He was caught with his hand in the cookie jar or with the cookie, and he's sorry he got caught because now he's got to give up the cookie or, or maybe he feels bad or he doesn't want the spanking. But we're trying to get Johnny to, to have that own, his own conscience cause him grief so that the next time when he takes the cookie and he begins to eat it, he immediately feels bad for it. Because his conscience has been shaped because you have been telling him, this is sin and this displeases God, but God forgives us. This is sin and it displeases God, but God forgives us. And over and over again, you're shaping his conscience so that one day Johnny takes the cookie and he feels terrible about it. He can't even eat it. It turns into gravel in his stomach because you have shaped his conscience. You have shaped him so that he, he now sees sin for sin. And that's godly sorrow for sin that leads him to repentance. So parents, we need to be shaping our kids in that way. Is your discipline of them leading them to that point? So that they feel, so that they, when they sin, they have respond with godly sorrow for we are always going to sin but it's what we do with that sin that matters and that is what the author of hebrews is trying to draw out in hebrews 12 when he quotes from proverbs 3 he says my proverbs three eleven says my son do not despise the lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights The Lord disciplines you not because he hates you, but because he loves you. His discipline produces in you the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You will have noticed that I have been intentionally using the word discipline and not punish. Punishment is reserved for the wicked. Those are illegitimate children who don't have God as their father. And is based on strict justice. We do not punish our children. We discipline them. Right? We're not God's agent of vengeance on our children. Sometimes we feel like we need to be. We're not. We are stewards of our children, and we are to discipline them just as God the Father disciplines us. And it's restorative. It's meant to lead them to repentance. And that's why it's not so much the suffering you are experiencing, but your relationship with God. Losing a job for one man who does not have God as his father might be punishment for sin. Maybe he was dishonest. Maybe he's just a scoundrel at his job. And that losing his job might be a punishment. But for the same person who's a believer, who has God as his father, losing his job might be discipline. Maybe he has grown too comfortable with what he has And God is testing him to see if he trusts in him. The same event can befall, and one is punishment, but one is discipline. It depends on your relationship with God. The author of Hebrews says in in verse 11 or chapter 12, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are trained by the discipline of the Lord, which results in deepened faith in God and the confident assurance that He will deliver us from whatever our present distress is. So how can we find relief from the suffering that we experience as a result of the Lord's discipline? By an appeal to God's grace, with godly sorrow for sin, which results in a deepened faith in God. Since God is gracious, we must plead with Him to deliver us when we are suffering under the rod of his discipline. Notice that in in verse 8 and 10, there is a shift in tone and audience. The psalmist turns to confront his enemy, whether that is sickness or anxiety or, or some other enemy outside of him, but the tone is confident. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall be turned back and be put to shame in a moment. Having turned to the God of grace and mercy and repentance, pleading with him to deliver him, he arises with confident assurance that God has heard and accepted his prayer. And from that assurance comes a bold statement to his enemies. He warns them. Now I need to say something about time in the Psalms. How is it that the psalmist can move so seamlessly from distress? The the very beginning, it's rebuke me not in your anger. And in the end, he's confident in the Lord. How, How is that possible? Does that happen while he's praying? The answer is, of course, varied, and it depends. But I I would say that it is possible, I think. I think it's possible in the middle of praying to come to a place where you're deeply broken and then you can get up off your knees at the end and have a confidence that you don't know where it came from. The Holy Spirit can comfort and take away our fears in a moment. But often the Psalms and the psalmist is reflecting on the situations that he's already gone through. So the praise and confidence comes because the psalmist has has experienced God's deliverance from whatever caused them to cry out. But, But I would contend in Psalm 6 that the psalm moves us in the space of singing it from a place of pain and anguish under the discipline of the Lord to a place of confidence that God will deliver us. Notice he hasn't been delivered yet. He's just confident God will do it. He calls his enemies to depart from him. That is a command. They're still there. They're still out there. The sickness is still riddling his body. And he commands them, depart from me. But verse 10 ends in a confession of faith for future deliverance. All my enemies shall be ashamed. They shall be turned back. His confidence in God enables him to say, This too shall pass. And of course, that is the whole purpose of discipline. In the first place, our faith is tested when we encounter the discipline of the Lord. And, we, and the question is, will we respond in repentance or turn in anger? When we turn in repentance, our faith is renewed as james says chapter 1 verse 3 you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and that that word james uses for perfect is teloios meaning mature but its root is telos goal where are you where are you aiming for What's the goal that you're heading towards? Maturity. What does maturity look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. That's where you're heading. You're heading to a kind of maturity that looks like Jesus. The way we reach Christ is through the discipline of the Lord. But the evidence that we're on the right path, that we are indeed maturing, is a deepened faith. Your trust is, And confidence in God are never static. Again, as James warns, a faith without works is dead. That is a faith that is not growing in confidence, resulting in renewed strength and action. It is dead. The psalmist in the beginning is really struggling. His faith is pretty weak. But at the end, it's rock solid. That's the point of singing Psalm 6. That's the point of singing it. Because we have our own struggles. We have our own discipline of the Lord that we're facing. And we come to God with all the weakness of our faith. And we're pleading with Him based on His gracious character. Filled with contrition for our own sin. That God would deepen our faith. That God would drive us to Christ. The psalmist does not adopt a victim mentality. He doesn't say, woe is me, God is disciplining me. Who can ever trust a God who disciplines his own people? Who makes them go through these kinds of hardships? I will not obey a God like that. Not until he relieves me. If he relieves me, then I'll obey him. In fact, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here and stew and wallow. You see, we live in a culture of victimhood with each disenfranchised group vying for the top of the victim ladder. But the victim mentality is not consistent with true godly repentance. For what, what often lies underneath the victim mentality is an unwillingness to take responsibility for yourself. Now, there are real victims who experience real oppression and suffering at the hands of sinful men. I'm not talking about that. I'm not discrediting that there are real victims in the world. There are, and they're often widows and children. But that's different from the victim mentality, which will often lead people to excuse their sin because of the actions of someone else. It's a form of blame shifting. A victim mentality can affect the way we think about. And relate to God. And as I said before, there's nothing that happens in this world that God is not the author of. God is not behind and directing. There's not an accidental thing in your life. And when people realize that, sometimes they get angry. We're very quick to attribute every good thing to God. And we should be. But I wonder, do we stop to think that the bad also comes from him? Some do, but not in the way that Psalm 6 does. And they consider that God is the one who's angry with them, and they shake their fist at him. And the result of this is not deep in faith, not a renewed confidence in the God to deliver. So examine your heart. How have you responded to the discipline of the Lord? Did it lead to renewed faith, to deepen confidence in God? Singing this psalm should give us all the tools we need to respond rightly to the discipline of the Lord. As the Puritans used to say, to kiss the rod of God's discipline. How? By appealing to the gracious character of a merciful God who is abounding in steadfast love and will in time deliver you from his rod of affliction. But not until it has done its work. Not until it has wrought repentance in you. Not until you come to see your sins for what they are. Not until you come to see that His power is made perfect in weakness. Until you are humbled. You will not turn a profit on the discipline of the Lord. Until you begin to frame your hardships as coming from the discipline of the Lord. You cannot learn from the lessons the Lord intends. The Puritan Thomas Brooke once said, Afflictions to humble souls are the Lord's plow, the Lord's harrow, the Lord's flail, the Lord's drawing plaster, the Lord's pruning knife, the Lord's potion, the Lord's soap, and therefore they can sit down and bless the Lord and kiss the rod. All those things are painful. Plows break up, the harrow flailing, beats the ground, all those things can be painful, but they yield peaceful fruit in the end. So respond to the rod of the Lord's discipline by appealing to his gracious character with deep sorrow for sin, and let his strokes deepen your faith and confidence in your God, whose steadfast love never fails. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are humbled under the weight of our own sins. And Father, we reflect on our own lives and we can look back and see the ways that you've disciplined us. Sometimes you disciplined us for the same lesson over and over and over and over again. And we got angry and we turned from you and we refused to acknowledge our sin and to see it for what it was. And so you taught us the lesson again. Father, may we who are facing your discipline. May we come to you and appeal to your gracious character, knowing that you will hear and you will respond and give us hearts that are broken to sin, to see them for what it is, to see its odiousness, to see its exceeding sinfulness and to turn from it to you deepen our faith in the midst of our trials so that we may be perfect. So that at the end, when we reach our goal, we may be mature in Christ. We pray that for each saint here. That you would encourage those who are under the rod of your discipline. And equip those who will face it in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. No one has suffered more.